Let me begin this time by asking you guys a question. What is your one thing? What is your one thing? You know, that thing that drives your life, that goal that you want, or you can think of it like the organizing principle behind everything you do, that one controlling factor. What is your one thing? For many people, it's, you know, you can think of their dreams, having a certain something, financial freedom, maybe it's a good job, or, or maybe it is achieving a certain level. So not only having, but maybe achieving, becoming, maybe CEO of your own company, starting your own thing, reaching a certain level in your company, you know, being the top 10 or, or such. Or maybe it is being a certain someone, so not just having or achieving. Maybe it's being a certain someone, maybe being more disciplined being more driven and then that organizing principle that controlling factor organizes your whole entire life around having achieving and being well in today's passage we see what that one thing is for a man named apostle paul or paul the apostle he was used by god to lay the foundation of the new testament church but where others might have that one goal or that organizing principle or that controlling factor, for Paul, it is a person. It is a person. His one thing is a person that organized his life for him and that he wanted to control all that he did. Who was this person? Well, you know, this is a Christian church. The person is Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. And we see from today's passage that he was undeterred and undaunted for Jesus Christ. He was undeterred and undaunted for Jesus Christ, despite being in such a difficult situation, which we're going to see. And we see that here in this difficult situation, he continues to fight to complete the mission. He is main point here, main idea, undeterred and undaunted for Christ. Undeterred, you may know the term. It means that he can't be thrown off track. He's not easily guided in the wrong direction he is undeterred no matter the cost he perseveres no matter the cost and then he's also undaunted he's undaunted he's fearless he's fearless now of course in scripture we see that that he is given into anxiety it doesn't mean that he is free from fear altogether but at the end of the day he is fearless he is undeterred and undaunted for jesus christ i invite you to turn with me to second timothy chapter four second timothy chapter four for this week and next week, Lord willing, we are going to be finishing up this letter, which is a beautiful letter, beautiful book of the Bible. This was Paul's last letter, and as he knew, it was the end of his race for Jesus Christ, that he had finished his course, he had run his race. So he writes this letter to his young son in the faith named Timothy, another pastor. So Paul here, he's already in jail. He is, if you read, read through the whole entire book, you'll see that he is chained for the gospel. He is imprisoned. In Rome, just as so many Christians were underneath the reign of Nero, they were murdered underneath the reign of Nero. If you turn over to chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, just go ahead and look there. We see that. He says there, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He's already in jail, but he sees himself being poured out as a sacrifice, right? I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have, past tense, fought the good fight. I have, past tense finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
as he, and then he, after he's done looking backward, he looks forward. And he says here, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, the day when Christ returns. And not only me, but also to all, everybody who has loved, who have loved his appearing. And as he pens this letter here to young Timothy, his son in the faith, and man whom he had trained, equipped, and sent out and charged to be a pastor of a church in the city of Ephesus, which is a coastal city in modern-day Turkey, he, he writes this letter. I wonder for you, I wonder for you, what would you write about to your loved ones in your last letter? I'm guessing that the things we find of greatest importance, right, that one thing that would make its way out of your heart, through the pen, and then onto the paper. You wouldn't throw away your last shot. That's what we see in our passage today, as well as the entire letter. Paul is undeterred and undaunted for the sake of Christ, despite the fact that he is alone. Despite the fact that he is alone. Look there, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. I'll go ahead and start there. It reads, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the house of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. What's our main idea here? Paul is undeterred and undaunted for the sake of Christ, despite him being alone. Undeterred and undaunted for the sake of Christ, despite him being alone. We're going to look at that main idea, break it up into two different points. We're going to look at the last half first. The last half first. It's, it's, he's undaunted and deterred despite him being alone. Despite him being alone. Paul was alone in so many ways. And his situation, his whole bad, bad situation, kicked off when a man named Alexander the coppersmith sold him out. If you look there in verse 14, it says there that Alexander, what did he do? He did me great harm. The Greek here could be understood, the Greek the Bible, the New Testament here was written uh, predominantly in Greek. So the Greek here could be understood in a way where it says, yes, Alexander did him great harm. Um, but specifically, specifically by selling him out to authority, he, he was a CI, a confidential informant. He informed the authorities of Paul and these Christians and what the gospel was. And he's probably spreading false lies here because what does it say there? He greatly opposed there in verse 15. He strongly opposed our message in Ephesus when he was in Ephesus. 
Um, he, he so much so he he opposed this message to he opposed Jesus so much so that Paul says there in fifteen the Lord will deal with him according to his deeds. He knows that wrongdoing has been done. God will deal with him according to his deeds. If he is not in Christ, if he doesn't have the righteousness of Christ, he will be judged. So Paul is in jail because of Alexander, but it's not just that. Paul is also isolated and alone, and so he asks Timothy there in verse nine, "Come to me," and then again. Uh, later on at the end there in verse 21, come to me before winter. But again, what is so encouraging about this passage is that despite his bad situation, despite him being alone, he is still undaunted, undeterred for Jesus Christ. Let's look at just how alone he is. First, first, we know that his friends had deserted him. We know that his friends had deserted him. Now, now it's one thing to feel alone. Uh, at various times in your life, because others might not know how to care. They might not know how to care, either because we don't share it, they just don't know. That's kind of like ignorance, right? That's ignorance in not knowing how to love. Now, none of us, none of us knows how to love perfectly in all of the infinite amount of ways that we could, in all of the infinite amount of situations, right? So we are, all of us, at least a little bit ignorant, which is why we need to what listen, love, learn, change to the best of our ability, and minister. Certainly imperfect, but that's what we do. But this here is not ignorance. That's not why he's alone. He's alone because of straight-up desertion. 416, look there, 416. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. As Jason mentioned earlier, I think that refers to his current court case against him, his current court case against him. So picture this. Paul gets arrested, and at his first defense, like a preliminary investigation, right, by the higher-ups, by the authorities, his friends and confidants, they could have testified to his innocence. They could have spoken up for him, but they didn't. They no-showed. I would be discouraged big time. You know, you're thinking, I could go free. I could avoid being torn apart by the wild beasts, which is what Nero was doing to the Christians. I could avoid being set afire on a stake to be made a light bulb for Nero in the city of Rome, which is what Nero was doing to the Christians. But they didn't show. And so he stands looking at this death sentence. And, and this instance of desertion is on top of what already happened. If you look there in chapter 1, look there in chapter 115, 115. He writes there, Timothy, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes, right? Why did they turn away? Well, if you look at verse 16, in verse 16, he turns to encourage somebody in the church there. And I think what these guys who turned away, what they did was the exact opposite. You look there in verse 16. Here he encourages Onesiphorus. May the Lord grant mercy, though, you're supposed to read this, though, to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me in the gospel in fellowship and was not ashamed of my chains. But what did he do? Verse 17. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Then he praised me. The Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus, which is exactly where Timothy is. So the folks who deserted him, they were ashamed of Paul, prisoner of the Lord and the gospel that he preached. They were ashamed of Jesus at the end of the day, and so they turned away. Turn over to 416, back to 416. Paul speaks again of a similar desertion. Look what he says there. For Demas, sorry, 410, 410. For Demas, in love with the present world, deserted me and went to Thessalonica. Paul says, come to me, Timothy, there in verse 9. The reason why, verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone away. 
Demas here, he just straight up chose the world instead of his partner, Paul. He chose the world. He looked at the comfort of the world and then also looked at Paul's situation for following Jesus and he chose the world. I wonder, friends, if you felt feel drawn to the world. Maybe you're tempted to look over at the world and see all of the world's pleasures and everything that it has to offer you. Maybe when you scroll social media or you just, you know, you know your friends and you see what they're doing. Maybe you see all the wealth and the comfort that people seem to have in material possessions. Maybe you look at your coworkers and your friends experiencing carnal pleasure. And what draws you is the supposed freedom that comes from doing what you want whenever you want it, despite what God the Lord says. Or maybe what attracts you is the draw of living for the glory of your own name, living for fame and power. Talk about wrong organizing principles, right, and controlling factors, things to live for, things to achieve, things to be the goal that one has for their lives. I mean, in the moment, Demas, he gave into some sort of this love with the present world, this temporary and yet fallen world. We have every reason to think that at the very least, he was ashamed of Paul and the testimony of the Lord. Put yourself in his shoes, right? What are his choices? You could side with Paul the Apostle, be ready to embrace the same discomfort that he was experiencing, all the discomfort that came with following Jesus, like going to prison and dying. Um, you know, just look at what happened to Jesus, whom he says he is a follower of. Or you can look over here. You can look over here at this on the, over the other shoulder, turn to where you came from, spiritually speaking, and return to the comforts of the world. And if you love the world enough, just enough, they might just adopt you as one of their own and never stand against you. Demas chooses the world and had at least, again, at least abandoned Paul and Christ in the moment. Don't really know what happened in the end, but at least in the moment, that's what he chooses. And what is the result? He removes himself from the presence of the spokesman of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, and deserts him. Of course, this makes sense, right? If, if worldliness is your one thing, Christian, if worldliness is your one thing, the last place you want to go to is the kingdom of God. The last place you'll want to go to is the church where the word of God is taught, where we are reminded that there is, in fact, a king over us, a king who is righteous, certainly loving, absolutely. That's why he says Jesus. But he is holy. And even in his love, he is holy. He loves holy things. He loves righteously, so much so that he tells his people, commands his people to live like him and helps them do that by giving us his Holy Spirit. Christian, let Demas be your warning. Let me encourage you, if you find yourself saying, I don't want to listen to the teaching of the word. I don't want to spend time with other Christians. Even if they're, or especially those who maybe aren't in my situation, aren't my age. I don't want to take their calls. It could be that you, friend, are in love with this present and fallen and temporary world. It could be that that is your one thing that you have made to be ruler over you, and it isn't Christ and his kingdom. Friends, if you know yourself to be siding with that, let me encourage you to repent of your sin and believe, turn back and trust in Jesus Christ, our good and loving Savior, who is holy and righteous as well. Now, I'm not saying that all the things that you may want in and of themselves are necessarily sinful, right? It is not necessarily sinful to have money. 
or to want it even. It is not necessarily sinful to desire responsibility and to move up in, the, in your company. It is not necessarily sinful to want to relax and take things a bit slower. It is not necessarily sinful to desire sexual intimacy. I mean, you think about all of these things, and God is the one who gives everything, right? God is the one who gives us money as he sees fit. God is the one who gives gifts people with leadership skills, and so they naturally might want to just lead no matter what they're doing. That's awesome. Uh, God also tells us to rest, especially for, for you know those of us who know the importance of it. Um, oftentimes we learn the importance of it because we don't want to rest. And God is the one who created sexual intimacy. Who is the one who you think designed our very bodies to experience pleasure? God is the one who did all these things. The thing is, none of these things and desires should topple the one king, the one king and his desires for you, Christian. If anything does, if any of one of those things does or your desires, then it has become your one thing. It has become your functional God. You have made it your functional God. Maybe you have made yourself your functional God. And in that way, you have sinned against God. You, maybe, are your one thing. You are your controlling factor. But you might say, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with living for these things or living for myself, right? Let's say, let's say, best case possible or something like that, you might make family as your one thing. Well, the answer is actually simple. It's because God is the one thing. He is the creator, the maker, the Lord, and he created us to be in a relationship with him where we worship him and know him intimately. He is to be our one thing. He designed our lives. And knows exactly how it should be run. So for us to cast him off and make ourselves king and lord and to steal his crown and put our own head defense, that is sin. And the Bible says so clearly that if there is only one king, which I believe, of course, that there is, then the punishment for our rebellion is death and judgment. Now, does God want to do that? No. The good news is that he sends us his son to bear the punishment that we deserve. We sin against him. We deserve death, eternal death even. I know that's not a happy thought, but eternal death and judgment in hell. But God so loves the world, as it says in John 3, 16, he gives us his son who would die as a substitute sacrifice, bearing the sin and the wrath that we deserve, his children deserve, so that we would be free. And in so doing, God seeks to take his people who have sinned against him and make them one with him through Jesus Christ. Through Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. There is right standing with God. There is adoption into his family. So many different blessings that come in Jesus Christ. Eternal salvation. Forgiveness of sins, freedom from guilt and shame, all that he does through Jesus Christ. Three days later, he raises Christ from the dead, showing that all for all, for those who repent of the sins and believe, there is no longer the death sentence hanging over us. Why? Because Christ took it for us as our substitute. Paul knew this. This is why it, his one thing was Jesus. He knew it. So much so that he says in Galatians 2.20, so intimately and personally, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. So personal there. He knew what he deserved, which is why Christ is his one thing. Christ the king. He knew who Christ was, and that's why Christ was his one thing. He was the one king. So let me encourage you, if you're hearing this gospel for the very first time, let me encourage you to repent of your sin and believe on Jesus Christ. Do not make man your one thing. Look at the world. Look at what happens when man makes man their one thing. But when you look at Christ, we have a righteous ruler who loves and saves and who forgives us of our sins. Repent of your sin and believe on Jesus and you will be saved, friend.
Thinking back to Paul and Demas, right? They're such opposites. Think back to Paul and Demas here. They're such opposites. Paul chooses to suffer for the gospel, while Demas chooses the comfort of the world. We don't know everything that Paul thought and felt in the moment about being deserted, but general human experience tells us that desertion, when you experience it, it is not easy. Not only is Paul alone because of desertion, he's also alone because of his circumstances. He's also alone because of circumstances. We're still underneath point one here in the fact that he is alone. He names others as having left him, right? Cretans and Titus as well have left Paul. You look there in verse 10. Now, we have no information on this guy named Cretans, and he's, he's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. But Titus, we have a really good amount of information on him. He was a trusted confidant to Paul, whom Paul brought on some of his missionary journeys. By all accounts, he is a solid young man and also a pastor. Paul, on a missionary journey, had left them on a Mediterranean island named Crete. And he says, look, take care of this church. Put what remains in order. Order it. Find elders. Uh, find leaders who can help and teach. Rebuke false teachers. All sorts of good stuff there in the letter to Titus. But by all accounts, he is a solid young man and pastor known for his encouragement to Paul and a number, a number of other Christians here. Paul charges him to lead that church on the island of Crete. And presumably, Paul finishes that mission and then rejoins Paul again. That's exactly what Paul says. He says, look, as soon as I send this guy named Artemis or Tychicus, either or, join with me. Come and join with me. So that seems to be what's happening here. Um, Titus finished up the mission on Crete. He joins up with Paul. And then eventually they wind up in Rome. And then Paul sends him off. Right? I don't think it's desertion here. I don't think here that Cretans and Titus have deserted Paul like Demas did, right? The reason why is that the grammar, again, in the Greek language indicates that Cretans and, Cretans and Titus have gone. That's all. What does Demas do? He, go, he deserts and goes. He deserts and then is gone. But for when it comes to Cretans and Titus, what does it say there? The Greek, again, it's just gone. They have left. Why have they left? Well, presumably because, because Paul sent them away on another mission. Either way, Paul is in difficult circumstance. Not only is he jailed, he is alone. And this is why he asked Timothy, come to me. Verse 11 as well. Bring Mark. Come to me and bring Mark. But what are we to make of this in light of Paul being undaunted and undeterred for Christ? Like where in the world do we see that? I mean, some people might even read this passage and think of Paul as the lonely Paul. Just wanting a few visitors, asking for someone to bring me my Bible to read all alone. And then when you do come... Also, we'll have one last fellowship session. But I actually think that there's a lot more going on in our passage. We see that despite him being alone, here we come to point number two. Point number two. Paul remains undeterred and undaunted for the sake of Christ. Paul remains undeterred and undaunted for the sake of Christ. This passage shows us that even though, even though Paul suffers persecution and is alone, he still, he is still unfazed, undistracted, unflinching when it comes to his mission to glorify Jesus Christ. Christ had saved him and given him a holy calling. In Acts chapter 9, verse 16, Jesus explains that Paul is the one to, quote, carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's a Paul-specific mission here. And then also as an apostle, he is to lay the foundation of the church. We see that though he is alone, though he is facing death, he continues to strategize and labor for first the spread of the gospel according to the word of God, right? Undeterred, undaunted for the sake of the gospel according to the word of God. 
Where does Paul tell Timothy to, or I should say, what does Paul tell Timothy to bring with him on his 1,200-mile journey from Ephesus to the city of Rome? Um, three things, three things. First, he says, bring Mark. Second, he says, bring my cloak. And then third, he says, bring the parchments. And all these things, when you look at them collectively, um, collectively as a whole, you see there that he's laboring for the word of God, actually. But we're going to look at Mark a little bit later. Let's look first there. Verse 13, he tells him to bring my cloak. Cloak is a sleeveless garment you uh, poke your head through, and it covers a large part of your body. He, he wants to be warm. He also is telling Timothy to come before winter. But next, it becomes clearer. Paul says there, quote, also the books, especially the part, parchments. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about Holy Scripture. You could translate this, bring the books. What I mean is, what I mean is the parchments, the scrolls of Scripture. It could mean bring like many books. And then he's focusing specifically on the parchments, that is Scripture. But I think uh, grammatically, grammatically, it would work both ways. But I do think he's using this one specific word that says specifically what I mean is the parchments. We know, too, uh, or, or uh, let, let's think back. Like, what does Paul do with the scriptures, right? What does Paul do with the scriptures? Does he intend to read them for himself? Yeah, sure. Personal edification, sure. He's going to hide the word in his heart. He's going to live off of not bread alone, but the word of God. But you know what else he did with the scriptures? Uh, we know in the book of Acts, you can look at a number of different chapters, 13, 17, verse, uh, chapter 26 especially, that he preached Christ from the law and the prophets, that, which refers to the Old Testament. He preaches Christ from the law and the prophets to those who are before him. And in chapter 6 of Acts, you see there the leaders, Gentiles from the Old Testament. He preaches Jesus Christ, who is the appointed Messiah, appointed to die on the cross for the sins of his people, who was raised, who would be, according to the Old Testament, raised from the dead, according to the scriptures for the forgiveness of sins. So when he asked Timothy to bring the books, especially the parchments, He's thinking of preaching Christ at his second defense to the highest ruler in the known world, the seat of ultimate power that is Nero, Rome. He's thinking there to his second defense, right? In the first defense, nobody stood by me. But in the second defense, he will once again preach the gospel, fulfilling his calling to preach the gospel to, again, Acts chapter 9, quote, Gentiles and kings just as Christ called him to, just as Christ commissioned him to, right? Think again, verse 17. What happened in his first defense? That's what he did. He preached the gospel. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Why? So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Don't think that he was strengthened so that he would be able to endure suffering and feel personally better. While I'm sure that is the case, specifically here, the passage says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, given everybody else deserted him, so that through me he would preach the gospel. Gentiles, kings, would hear it. So here again, we see the priorities of Paul. It's not just I'm alone. God was with me. I felt better. No, the order was I was sold out. To those who could have stood by me, they fled. I was deserted, even by my coworkers. But what happened? You want to know what happened? Before the Roman rulers in the courts of the highest earthly power, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me with power. He put power inside of me through the Holy Spirit. And here I am today, quote, delivered from the lion's mouth. 
as verse 17 says. And you know what's going to happen in the future? The Lord will rescue me. Regardless of court cases, regardless of desertions, regardless of the lions, regardless of the fires, the Lord will rescue me once, once and for all, basically, from every evil deed. That is those deeds that keep them from final salvation and bring me home. And who does he want with him, right? In this second defense, he's aiming for the second defense. Who does he want with him? Laboring for Christ side by side. He wants not just his friends, but his most trusted partners in the gospel. He is assembling the team. We've been watching a lot of Avengers in quarantine time. This is Avengers Assemble, except, you know, God is the only Avenger. They're to leave judgment to God when it comes to vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But he's assembling the dream team of preachers, of ministers who have taken up the mission to spread the gospel and to solidify the early church. So in light of them, in light of those who deserted him, who does he call to be around him? Well, he notes already there, Luke. Luke, the doctor, he's still with me. So he's not completely alone, right? You get that? He, he actually isn't entirely alone. It is superficially true that he's been deserted by all, but he's not entirely alone. Luke is with him. If you look there in verse 21, you got all these other people with him, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, right? But his most trusted guys, where have they gone? They've left him for various reasons. But who's with him, right? And who does he want to be with him? Luke, the doctor historian who wrote the Gospel of Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, most of the New Testament. Um, right there, right? This guy named Luke, he traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys, helping to evangelize and plant churches. You have then Timothy, the guy who Paul's writing to, his son in the faith. Paul, uh, Paul brought Timothy as well on some of his missionary journeys. He's trusted by Paul and charged to oversee the church in Ephesus and to do different things. He's a son in the faith. And then you have Mark. Mark, who also went on missionary journeys. And though Paul and Mark may not have gotten uh, gotten off, or they might have gotten off to a bumpy start in the book of Acts. There was a disagreement. They parted ways. Apparently, Mark has proved himself through his track record and through time. And now Paul, tell, Paul calls on Timothy to bring him. He is useful to me for ministry. Don't think selfish goal. Think as an apostle. He is useful to the apostle who is charged to preach the gospel, bring the gospel to Gentiles, and to lay the foundation of the church. Mark is useful for ministry. So different than Demas, who removed himself and made himself useless. These brothers are useful to Christ. You see what Paul's doing? He's calling on his dream team. He's calling on them to make one last push, one last stand. To herald Christ's name before Gentiles and kings, undaunted, undeterred for Christ and his gospel, despite imprisonment and abandonment and loneliness. Second thing, second thing, not only does he labor for the spread of the gospel, Paul labors for the strength of Christ's church. He labors for the strength of Christ's church. Why is it that as he calls Timothy to leave Ephesus and join him in Rome, that he also sends Tychicus to Ephesus? I know there's some history here, so try and try and tune in here. Verse 12, right? Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Well, friends, that's exactly where Timothy is. He's sending Tychicus there to care for the church of Ephesus so that Timothy would be freed up to bring Mark to go to Rome. You see there that even Paul here, he has the care of the church on his mind. He has the care of the church on his mind. And then remember back to Titus and Cretans. If the reading is correct, that he's sending them out to go on this mission, various missions. 
you realize that Paul is sacrificing his own comfort in having Titus and Tychicus around as friends, co-laborers, in order for the church in the Mediterranean island in Crete to be cared for. Again, after the mission of Crete is wrapped up, presumably Titus links back up to Paul. It's exactly what Paul wants him to do in Titus 3.12. And then Paul sends him off to care for the church in Dalmatia. So you see, friends, that Paul was doing exactly what he has always been doing, laboring for Christ and the spread of the gospel and the establishment of the church. He always has this on his mind, so much so that he experienced, quote, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Of course, it is for the church that he wrote all of his letters. It is for the church that he wrote this letter to Timothy. Paul's one thing is Christ. To use language that Paul used earlier, it is to, his one thing is to, chapter 2, verse 4, please the one who enlisted him. I wonder for you, Christian, what is your one thing? Thinking on an individual level, what is your life mission? It is to be it is to do what? Thinking more collectively. So for us as a church. If you could assemble your co-laborers to labor side by side with, your trusted confidants who have partnered together with you in covenant, what would you labor to accomplish and why? What would you labor towards to accomplish and why? Friends, you see that this goes way beyond career aspirations. I know when I ask the question, what is your one thing? We're probably mostly thinking of career stuff because this is what leadership gurus, supposed leadership gurus tell us to think about. But friends, this goes way beyond career aspirations. It certainly no doubt includes how one works. It certainly includes what one does for work, but it goes way beyond these things. For Paul, his one thing was to please Christ, the Lord and Savior in everything he did. And for, friends, for us, Paul and Timothy, they are our examples. No doubt Paul is a unique apostle who, to whom Christ once again charged to carry his name before, carry Christ's name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. But though we may not have the exact same charge as Paul, he is still our example. He was for Timothy. While some of, Timothy's, uh, while some of Paul's co-labors and confidants deserted him and Christ in the moment, Paul remained steadfast for Christ, choosing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And so he encourages Timothy, and by extension and application, for us to do the same. Chapter 1, verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Just as Paul was strengthened and empowered by the Spirit of Christ, to stand for Christ, so he calls Timothy, and by us, by extension and application. In chapter 2, verse 1, to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and to continue gospel ministry. Just as Paul was about the spread of the gospel, even in his last days, so he calls Timothy and all preachers and pastors by extension, and every Christian by application, to preach the word, or to share the word, to herald the word, chapter 4, verse 2. Just as Paul, Paul's ministry is founded on the fact that, quote, God will guard the gospel entrusted to me, so he reminds Timothy and every member of the church by extension and application to guard the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, chapter 1, verse 14. 
And as he is undeterred and undaunted for Christ, he reminds Timothy and all of us of the hope we have in persevering to the end. 4 verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Praise God for that. So with that, let's pray that, in fact, Christ would be our one thing. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, God, we ask that by your spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ, you would take Christ's purposes, his goals, his passions, and you would instill them in our hearts such that we would live for the exact same things that Christ lived for. So that we would feel the exact same ways about which Christ felt, whether it be sin or the glories of the gospel or the beautiful things in the Lord, we would feel those very same ways. We pray, Lord, that you would unite us, First Baptist Church, so that no matter what happens, we too would be undaunted and undeterred from the mission to love Christ through the spread of his name and to love Christ through loving his people. We pray these things for the sake of your glory. Amen.